Um, Our reading today is from the book of Matthew, and we're hearing the story of Jesus' baptism and of his temptation. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, up to chapter 4, verse 11. So if you want to follow along, if you've got a pew Bible, there's a few Bibles around. Otherwise, feel free to follow along in your phone. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pete's going to come up now and preach for us. Um, But before we do that, how about I just pray for us, kids and adults, um, as we hear from God's word today. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word, for the Bible. We thank you for its riches for us. Uh, We thank you that it tells the story um, of who we are, of how far we have fallen short Uh, of your glory, and yet how you sought us, um, how you wanted still to be in a relationship with us, um, so much so that you gave your son Jesus, um, so that we could be forgiven from our sins, so that we could know you, um, and know you as our God and as our Father. Father, as we hear uh, from your word today, we pray that we would be listening with open hearts and open minds, that we would uh, humble ourselves before you, Uh, and trust that um, you do speak to us and, yeah, that we would be ready to listen uh, and not just listen with our ears, but really be meditating on what you have to say to us today, um, how you're calling us to live in greater obedience to you um, and how we can glorify you with every part of our lives. So we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good to be with you, Inner West. Oh, so hot, but I'm so thankful you're here um, because it is just good to be together as God's people and to join with each other in worship and learning 
um, and uh, experiencing God in, in a new and refreshing way each Sunday. It's just wonderful to be with you. Um, I'm going to pray. Uh, if you uh, have a Bible or an app, I'd really love you to be in Matthew chapter 4 because that's where we are going to spend our time for the next little bit. Make sure I can do this here. Okay, let me pray. Uh, Grant, almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind as at midday or willfully seek darkness, but may we be roused daily by your words. And may we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name and thus present ourselves in all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you so that you may rule and dwell in us. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, have you ever looked at someone and thought they make it look easy? The Australian Open was on recently, and you can see these incredible tennis players returning serves at an amazing, a breakneck speed and think they just make it look easy. Uh, you might have seen um, a, a really great therapist or counsellor, and they just seem to always know exactly the right question to ask to really get to the heart of an issue. They make it look easy. Or maybe um, you've experienced uh, having a great parent who just exudes wisdom and love for their kids, who just seems to always know what to say and what to do to make their lives great and flourishing. They make it look easy. Now, is any of that actually easy? No. <laughs> I went and played tennis the other day for the first time in about 20 years. So to say I was rusty would be um, an, a massive understatement and, in fact, was flogged by a 60-year-old man. So it, it wasn't easy. It's not easy to return those serves. Uh, the counsellor, that, that's not an easy thing to be able to say the right things and ask the right questions to get to, to the heart of an issue. Parenting, if you've been parenting for about three seconds, you know parenting is hard and difficult and often you don't have the right answers, you don't have the correct wisdom to know how to care for your kids. And yet there is examples of, of people who, who just are great at those things. What do they have in common, the great counselor, the great tennis player, the great parent? Well, years of experience developing resources and tools that they can just draw on at any moment, often by reflex and instinct. You know, the counselor has a psychology degree and years and years and years of hours upon hours of practice and ongoing uh, professional development, learning how to talk to people, how to listen really, really well. The tennis player has years and years, years of muscle memory, returning those serves over and over and over again, watching great players and learning from them. They have a professional coach to help them. And the great parent, well, they've had years of trial and error, making mistakes and learning from them. And perhaps they've grown up now to be able to pass on to their kids how to parent their kids. With each of these um, examples, something spurred these people on to learn and grow and develop past that first counselling session, that first tennis game, those first five seconds of having a child. What was it? It's love. They've, they've 
they love caring for people, and so they've worked hard at it. They love the game of tennis, and so they practice and practice, and they love their children and want them to succeed and do well. Sometimes I see older, mature Christians, Christians who have been uh, in the faith on that journey for decades, and I think they make it look easy. They just seem to exude goodness and love and compassion and godliness. Their prayer lives are rich. They know the scriptures back to front, inside and out. And they're missional. They have this posture towards the world where their whole lives seem to be poured out as a sacrifice for others. What's their secret? Are they just naturally holy? You know the Maybelline ad, maybe they were born with it. No, they have cultivated over the course of their lives deep spiritual resources that they are able to draw upon at any moment. It's not easy, but they make it look easy because they have found ways over the course of their lives to overcome difficulty. Are they perfect? Do they no longer make mistakes? Of course not. But there is... Something about a mature Christian that stands out, that's attractive, that makes us want to be like them. Uh, This year we are focusing on, as a church, developing missional spirituality. Now I'm sure you all remember the definition I gave several weeks ago, but in case you didn't, I'll, I'll say it again. A missional spirituality is a consistent missional posture and persistent missional habits all enabled by a deepening sense of God's power and presence. So missional posture and habits enabled by a deepening sense of God's power and presence. What does it take to develop that kind of deepening sense of God's power and presence? Developing spiritual resources. Developed through the kind of habits that at least include Scripture, Sabbath, and prayer. And this first part of the year, we're focusing on Scripture. Um, Now, last week, for those of you here, we uh, practiced a tool, actually. It's a resource about how to read the Bible for all it's worth. And we gave you these four questions. Um, What are we like? What is God like? What has God done through Christ? And how should we live? You've got a bookmark. And if you didn't get a bookmark last week, then we should have some up the back after the service. You can grab one. Um, Today, as we finish our little three-part series, I want to talk about precisely how being immersed in the Bible, how knowing it really well, learning to know it really well, and eventually know it back to front, inside out, uh, how that reality helps us to become missional people. Okay? Through three different stories. Story one, the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Secondly, our story. And thirdly, Jesus' story. Story of Israel, story of us, story of Jesus. So we're going to start with the story of Israel. We're going to take a trip back into the Old Testament, back to Genesis and Exodus. In Genesis chapter 12, um, what happens? Um, This guy Abraham or Abram at that time, comes on the scene. He's called by God out of obscurity. 
He's a nomadic tribesman. And God says to him, I'm going to call you to become the father of a nation. And more than that, this nation that you're going to be the father of is going to be a blessing to the whole world. And Abraham responds to the call, right? And as he goes and his family grows and it eventually becomes a nation of Israel. The nation of Israel under God becomes God's way of bringing into this world order, justice, and goodness. They're, they begin to be restored as people made in the image of God, made to nurture and heal and restore and renew. People who point to Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the creator of the whole world, as the redeemer, as the good father, the good king, the just judge. And they become a beacon to the nations, a, a, a flashing neon sign that says, God is here. God is here. Now, you probably know the story. After Genesis, um, the nation of Israel eventually ends up enslaved in Egypt. And they're there for 400 years. And then God, through Moses, comes and does the, uh, these incredibly magnificent, powerful acts. And he draws them out of Egypt, out of slavery, in this incredible act of salvation and redemption. He parts the Red Sea, and they walk through unscathed. And the Egyptians behind them have the waters close in on them. What should have been death for Israel and life for their enemies ends up being life for Israel and death for their enemies. And not long after that, um, they come to the mountain of Sinai and, and God says to them this incredible act of, of, of um, inauguration for them as a nation. He says, you are my people. I am your God. And he does it so that Israel can say, yes, God can be trusted. God can be relied on. God is here present with us. And so we can faithfully and freely serve him and bring blessing to the world. We can live into, we can lean into this identity that he's given us as his people. And so he says to them, I'm going to take you into this promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And from there you're going to be established as a people and become that beacon of hope to the world. Uh, it should have been a short journey, just a few months. But it turned into a very long one. Why? Well, no sooner had they gone through the Red Sea than they began to complain. They said, maybe God isn't really all good. And, so, and they demanded a sign. They said, is the Lord among us or not? Is he really trustworthy? They began to feel the pangs of hunger and thirst. They began feeling weak and lost and lonely in the wilderness. And so they began to believe that perhaps even though they had seen signs and wonders that no nation had ever seen, they began to doubt. They began to doubt that God is really with them and that God is really good, that God is really their father. They gave into temptation. They complained, they demanded, and actually even after God did give them Miraculously, again, water from the rock, food, manna from heaven, and quail. Even after that, 
they still ended up making a golden calf and bowed down and worshipped it. And so God punished them. And there they stayed in the wilderness for 40 years before eventually being brought to the promised land. Yeah, well, well, yes, yet they were established. And under David and Solomon, for a little while, Israel really was that beacon of hope to the nations. But we know actually that that story did not end well. Story of Israel. What about our story? Well, Israel's call and our call as the church, as Christians, is the same. Be a blessing to the world. In Matthew chapter 5, not long after our passage, Jesus uses two images, metaphors, to describe what that looks like. He says you've got to be salt and light. What's salt? Well, salt um, preserves food, particularly in the ancient world where there's no refrigeration and it's very hot. Salt preserves food. And yes, salt enhances flavor. So this image that God gives us that um, as his people we're to rule over the world, not to exploit it, not to abuse it, not to grab its resources for ourselves selfishly, uh, but to serve the world, nurture the world, improve the world, preserve the world. Christians have to have this preserving influence on everything that we touch. And we make things tasty, we make things better (laughs) as we shine the light of God into it. And that's the second one, isn't it? So salt and light. What does light do? Light reveals. Light shows the way. Light chases away darkness. And so we're not just to be preservatives in the world, but light, like to be actually witnesses to God, to, to sh- shine the truth of what is, rea- or what is real. Be walking, talking signposts about Jesus to show people that he is the creator, he is the Lord, he is the king, the saviour, the redeemer, the just judge. Salt, preserving, light, revealing. Put those together and that is being a blessing to the world. We can call it our mission if you like. And if you're a Christian, that's the, the Genesis 12 Abraham part of our journey. If you're a Christian, then you've also had a Red Sea experience. Because once, Paul would say, we were enslaved in sin and to death, lost in darkness, and yet God extended his grace to us and rescued and redeemed us and brought us out of that place of death and sin and decay and brought us into his marvelous light and called us children. He didn't split apart an ocean, literally, for us to do that. No, he allowed himself to be split apart on the cross to be pierced for our transgressions, to die in the person of Jesus. That event is what the Spirit uses to motivate this new life in us. And, and so it's, it's not surprising that baptism is the initiation ritual for Christians because we go through the waters just as the Israelites went through the Red Sea. And instead of them being death for us, it's life. God makes a way for us to come out. Uh, And so, as we come out, what is it? We get a commission. We get a mission to be salt and light to others. 
We're not just told be salt and light. We're actually told be salt and light because God has been salt and light to us. Through Jesus, he has preserved our life and made our life good, injecting goodness into us, blessing. He gives us the joy of knowing him and being known by him. He salted us, not assaulted us, salted us. God has also shone his light in our hearts. He's revealed to us who he is and what he's done. He's shown us the true story of reality, of history from beginning to end. And he illuminates for us the kinds of mysteries that angels long to look into. So God has been salt and light to us so we can be salt and light to others. But who finds that easy? Some people make it look easy, but who finds it easy? I don't think anyone does. Who finds it easy to truly and deeply love others in all circumstances, even our enemies? Who finds it easy to care for our world and steward our resources, even at the expense of our own comfort? Who finds it easy, despite what we believe about God and what he's done, to point to Jesus publicly in front of those who don't believe? Who finds that easy? I don't. I'm guessing you don't either. Something gets in the way, right? There is an obstacle to us being the kinds of people God wants us to be. Temptation is the word for that. Now, I say the word temptation, and it might conjure up for you um, images of particular sins, because that's how it's used in our culture and world. Um, often greed and lust, particularly. Maybe adverts for Magnum ice creams kind of pops into your mind. Uh, or, or giving into seduction, as you might see in a movie. But uh, temptation is simply any way, any and all ways, that our life choices become um, unaligned to God's will for us. Any time that when we're faced with a choice between doing what God wants and doing what we want, and we feel the tug on our hearts, the pull towards the wrong way. It's what happened to Israel in the wilderness. Their growling bellies and dry tongues tempted them to think that maybe God isn't truly on their side after all. Maybe he's not for us. Maybe it's all been a scam. Sure, God might have done some amazing things, yeah, but now in their moment of need, he has abandoned them, they thought. Now, I don't think you actually have to be religious to kind of get this, right? Uh, everybody knows well what it's like to be face of a choice and know well what direction is the right way to choose, the right option, the good and moral thing, and yet willingly not take it. We've all been there. Everyone has been there. We know that pull, that tug on us, inner selves, towards convincing ourselves that it's really totally okay that we withheld that act of service or lied to get out of a jam or failed to stand up for what is right and fair when the pressure was on. We know what it's like. But I reckon most people would rather not be that type of person. <laughs> Most people would want to be people of integrity, people of morality, who'd actually do the right thing. 
who, who feel those tugs, but say, no, I'm not going to do that. And even better, says, no, I'm not going to do that, and then doesn't feel smug about it when they do the right thing. But just kind of humbly does what is right, not to show off, not to showcase, but just, just does. Does what is right simply because it's right. We have no need for fanfare. After all, to do something good and then to act badly about the thing that you've done that's good is kind of to give in to temptation, isn't it? So what's the difference between someone who gives in to temptation and someone who doesn't? What's the difference between someone who gives in to those tugs on the heart and someone who resists? Well, the difference is living out a better story. Not the story of Israel, who were in that position and failed the test, but a story where they overcome it. Everyone loves a good coming-of-age story. Um, every generation has one. If you're a bit older, maybe it's like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. If you're a bit younger, I don't know, it's probably a TikTok dance. Uh, somewhere in the middle there is Harry Potter. Actually, which just transcends generations, let's be honest. It's just great. Harry Potter, uh, it's hugely popular. Why? Yeah, it's a good story. It's a good yarn. But more than that, actually, I think Harry Potter was, um, is so attractive as a story because it traces the journey of this young boy, Harry, from the pivotal uh, pre-adulthood year, what, 10 or 12 or something, through the teenage years, where in any person's life, there are forks in the road almost every day, as you're learning what it means to just live in the real world, what it means to be an independent person. And so Harry, as a character, goes through these struggles and failures and confusions, and we watch it and we go, there's a my struggles and failures and confusions. And particularly if you read the books at the same kind of age as they came out, just incredibly powerful, because we feel like Harry is us. Now, not, I know not all of you are Harry Potter fans, but just translate that into just whatever coming-of-age story you like. We are attracted to people and characters and stories that seem to mirror our own. Except where we may have failed, the hero succeeds. We would love to inhabit that story and feel maybe really sad that often we don't. Now, any uh, Jewish person in the first century reading the Gospels uh, is going to immediately pick up this same kind of dynamic with Jesus. The gospel writers are really clever in hinting that Jesus of Nazareth is in some way replaying the coming-of-age story of Israel. Does that make sense? Re inhabiting that story again. How? Well, there's all sorts of hints, particularly in the gospel of Matthew. And we heard read just a couple of major ones. Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan. Why? John's baptism was a baptism for sins. It was about repentance, right? So why? Why would Jesus be baptized the only sinless person? He didn't need to be. Even John balked at the idea that Jesus... He said, no, no, you've got to be baptizing me. <laughs> and yet Jesus did. Why? Why? 
Well, there's lots of different reasons, but one of the main ones for our purposes is that in that moment, Jesus was identifying with us. Jesus was stepping into and beginning to replay our story. Who goes down into the, into the water? Sinful people. Where does the Son of Man, the only sinless person, go? He goes down too. He gets down into the muck and mire of sin. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. There's a bit more to it than that. When Jesus goes into the Jordan, where well, we're, a Jewish person, we're reminded of two things. One is that at the end of that 40 years in the wilderness, the, the entry point to the promised land was the River Jordan. But more than that, actually, there's hints here of the Red Sea. There's hints here that Jesus, in a symbolic way, is beginning Israel's journey again, coming through the water. And we know that because after Israel went through the Red Sea, what happens is at Mount Sinai, God said, inauguration, identification, you are my chosen people. And what happens is Jesus comes out of the water, a voice from heaven, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So here we are, Jesus beginning the story of Israel again. What happens next? Israel was led out into the wilderness. Where does Jesus go? The Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. Not for 40 years, but for 40 days and 40 nights. And so here we find Jesus, hungry, thirsty, tired, weak, lonely, just like Israel. So if you're a Jewish person, you know that story back to front. What are you wondering there's going to come a temptation. Jesus is going to be tempted to leave the way. And that's exactly what happens. The devil, Satan, or simply called the accuser, the tempter, comes to him, which is very interesting because the accuser of God's people, Satan, when does he come? He comes when we're at our weakest, not at our strongest. And he comes and he tempts Jesus with three temptations. This is the first one. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What's the devil saying? The devil is saying, Your father isn't really good. He won't come through for you. You have to make something happen for yourself. If you're the son of God, if you've truly got that kind of power, make yourself comfortable. You're hungry, you're tired, just turn the stones to bread. And so the question we're asking ourselves is, is Jesus, just like Israel, going to fulfill his own needs? Is he going to complain and grumble and actually having more power than Israel, just turn stones to bread and fill his own comfort? Would G, or would he trust his father, who has just said, this is my beloved son, to provide for him, even in that place? The first temptation. The second temptation, the devil says, well, um, you know your Bible. I know, my, I know your Bible too, so I'm going to use it against you. 
Then the devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91. What's the devil saying? He's saying, Your father isn't really great enough that his sign of approval is enough for you. You've got to grab status for yourself. Lift yourself up and, and jump off the temple and have the angels catch you and everyone will know who you are. Everyone will come and follow you then when they see that kind of a miracle. So we're asking ourselves, would Jesus, will Jesus trust his father that the only sign people need the only sign he'll ever need to show people, show the world, is not the sign of him grabbing glory for himself, but the sign of his own death, of emptying himself of status all the way to a shameful cross. Temptation number three, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and says, all of this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. What's he saying? Your father isn't really glorious. He's not worthy of worship. He's not trustworthy. He's not reliable. He's not holy. Bow down to me and I will give you what you want. Your God won't come through for you. I'll come through for you. I'll give you a shortcut to earthly power if you just worship me. So Jesus, we're asking, is he going to do it? The Israelites bowed down to the golden calf. Is Jesus now going to bow down to the devil himself? Would he do that very same thing that Israel did over and over and over throughout their whole history and trust his future to an idol? So, temptations. Is, is, is God really good? Is God really great? Is God really glorious? Now in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, but did not sin. Um, and theologians argue about what exactly that means. And is it real temptation? Like Jesus, could Jesus have given in or not? Now, I, it's, it's a difficult one to answer and um, I'm not going to answer it now because I don't know. But this is what I do know. I do know that as Jesus experienced these temptations, they were real for him. It, they tugged on his heart. He experienced the pull towards those shortcuts to avoid hardness, hard times, suffering, to avoid having to uh, gain status through suffering in the cross but, and, and to... And to get that shortcut to power. He must have, I believe, felt it. It was a real temptation in that Jesus really felt tempted, even though he didn't need to. He is the, the eternal word, the creator of the universe. He could have flicked his fingers and the devil would have been flung back into whatever hell he came from. He didn't. He didn't. Why? Because in that moment, the Son of God was playing out our story. And we are tempted, and so he was too. And I think in that moment, as those temptations tugged on Jesus' heart, he felt the draw to them. He felt the desire to give in, to take the easy way. 
He responded in a way which was not the way he could have done as the son of God, the creator of the universe. He responded in a human way, but in the kind of way that humans are designed to respond, how how God wants them to respond. He responds to those three temptations. Jesus, the eternal word of God, quotes the written word of God. Not because he needed to, but because he chose to. He quotes scripture. And not just any scripture, actually, but from Deuteronomy. The words of Moses to the Israelites in the wilderness. Referring right back to that moment um, when they grumbled for bread, uh, for water. And these aren't just memory verses. They aren't magical formulas that if you kind of say them hard enough or loud enough or often enough, then somehow they kind of work. No, what he's doing actually is accessing the story of God and particularly in answering that question that we've taught you to last week to ask, which is, what is God like? He's magnifying God right then and there. He's bringing to himself who God really is and what he's like. And he's simply telling the devil what he knows is true. And so to the first temptation, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, God is good. He has provided for our every need, and he always will. He can be relied on and trusted to provide for us even in the worst of situations when we're the hungriest and thirstiest and weakest. He will come through for us. And the second temptation, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, God is great. He's already given us the signs of his grace, his power and his might. We can't demand more of him, only ask that he makes more of us. God is great. And then for the third one, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In other words, God is glorious. He is worthy of our worship because he alone is truly holy, truly beautiful, truly good, truly trustworthy. And so these are the three temptations that Jesus got. These are the temptations that we get every day. We're constantly being tempted by the world, by our own sinful hearts, and yes, even by evil spiritual forces to believe lies about God. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his Screwtape Letters, he imagines an older devil kind of mentoring a younger devil. If you haven't read it, you should, because it's amazing. Um, And one of the things the older devil says to the younger devil is, People imagine that we tempt them by putting stuff into their heads. Actually, it's much more effective to keep things out. People think that we're tempted by having stuff put in their heads. No, it's much more effective to put, keep stuff out. Keep what out? Keep truth out. <laughs> keep the truths about who God is and what he's like out of our heads because we will fill those, that gap with something different. Not, what, not the truth and beauty of God, but the truth and beauty of ourselves. So don't keep the truth out of, out of who we are. Don't, don't, he says, make sure you don't look too hard at yourself. 
because you might realize that you're a sinner and you need help. Um, and don't look too, too hard at God. Stop magnifying him because you might realize that he actually is all that you need, that he actually is the gracious one. Instead, fill that gap with God isn't good. You have to make things happen for yourself. And God isn't great. You need to earn status to show everyone that you are significant. And God isn't glorious. You have to bow down to an idol so that you can get what you need, comfort, security, power, acceptance. Jesus went through all these temptations, actually, so that he can shine a light on them to show them for what they really are, that they're lies. But they're good lies. They're lies we want to hear because they pander to our selfishness. They're tempting lies. And they're lies that can't be overcome by just gritting our teeth, closing our eyes and blocking our ears, and going la 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 No, they can't be overcome that way. They're too sneaky. They're too deceptive. No, they're overcome by having on the tips of our tongues a true story, a better story. A true story, the story that doesn't end here in the wilderness with the Israelites circling round and round for 40 years. And actually it ends, it doesn't end actually with the next chapter where, where Jesus starts his ministry and says, I goes about from town to town preaching that the kingdom of God has come near. It doesn't, doesn't end with that either actually. No, it ends in a different wilderness, in the desolation of the cross and the glory of the resurrection. Because it's there, this pivotal moment in the Bible and in human history, where we see what is absolutely true about God, that God is good. So good that he didn't spare his own son Jesus, but gave him up for us, so that, we might, that he might become for us the bread of life, the very essence of what we really need to flourish. And there at the cross, we see that God is great. But he shows his greatness not by grabbing power for himself, but by giving it up. And God is glorious. He's worthy of our trust, of our worship, because he alone has proved to be the only God who is holy and good enough that instead of making us sacrifice for him to get what we need, that he sacrificed for us to give us what we need. So why do you need to be immersed in the Bible? Because unless you are, you won't be immersed in the true story and you won't have the kind of resources you need to resist temptation. Now, let's circle right back around. What's this got to do with mission? Well, if mission is offering blessing to the world, then selfishness is what sabotages it. Because mission is entirely about self-giving. It's a posture of selflessness. Selfishness is what sabotages it. So for us to have a missional spirituality, to have a posture and habits that are outwards to others. You have to be perpetually connected to this true story and always remind that God is good so we can offer goodness. God is great so we can expend power for others. And God is glorious. So serving him on mission is what we are truly designed to do and what we ought to do. 
A missional person is someone who is immersed in the Scriptures, who know the answers to the questions, what am I like? What is God like? What has God done? And how should I live? Because that means that when temptation comes and we feel those tugs on our hearts, there's another tug, a stronger tug, a stronger desire that leads us to the cross and has the rest of Scripture to lead us to the cross because all roads lead to Jesus, the cross and the resurrection in the Bible. Now there's a question there, do I have to become a Bible nerd in order to be connected into this? No, God meets us where we are. If you're a, you could be a Christian for one day and the Spirit would show us something of himself. It would lead us to the kind of resources we need. But he still wants us to grow up into maturity. And more than that, actually, he wants us to be in a community where Scripture is something that just is, flows throughout our entire life together. Ephesians 4 says, speaking the truth in love to each other will grow up into the maturity of Christ. A community that offers that story to each other so that you don't always have to have the answers, you don't always have to have the resources. Actually, we can help each other and offer them to each other. Not out of a prideful, I know more than you, so I'm going to help you, but simply out of a genuine concern that we grow into a greater trust and understanding of God's goodness and greatness and glory. And then I believe, in a West, the devil will be perpetually frustrated. Amen. Um, We're a bit short on time. I've got some questions for you. Um, I think what I'll ask you to do is just take two minutes. Don't discuss it. Just have a bit of a reflection on those two things and maybe that's something to keep chatting about after the service. Then we're going to come and sing and we'll take the Lord's Supper in a second.